This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said, shoot the 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass the in here, just lay down and do it. <laughs> Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to the stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of the, one of the problems we ran into, is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place, smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to Get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. Woo. What's going on, Sky? Oh, not much. Just um, trying not to get completely overwhelmed by the semester, so things are good. Yeah, yeah good. All yeah, right. how's it going with you? Oh, just trying not to get overwhelmed by uh, Halloween season. Yeah, I was going to say events coming up. (laughs) Events, yeah. Thank you to everybody who came to our 13 Stories event. Uh, Definitely check out our YouTube page, the Old Idaho Penitentiary, to watch these films. Some of them actually recreated stories that we've told on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And you can see our very own Sky Cranny on one of them. It's me. yeah, so check those out, uh, definitely. And thank you again to all the filmmakers and everybody involved in making that event happen. And it's it's such a cool resource. If you like the podcast, mm-hmm. you're going to love the mm-hmm. these local film crews, how they recreated these stories. And, man, the Margaret Hardy one, you're going to have oh, nightmares. It really? is really oh, scary, yeah. Spooky. And how they, like, interpreted the story with the modern institution, it's it's oh, really amazing. Cool. Yeah. 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 And like I'll plug, I was in uh, one for All Will Reams, who was yeah. um, the youngest uh, female inmate as far as we know. Um, we haven't touched on her yet, but since I pretty much did the research um, for the, the film, I'll, we'll definitely do her probably next season. But I actually got to be a talking head. Um, and the filmmaker crew I was working um, with, Anthony Blaine, I was very nervous going in. I didn't know what to expect. But he was nothing, like, everyone on that crew was nothing but kind. They were just so lovely to work with. And I could tell that they had, like, a vision of, like, what this was going to be. And I was, I can't wait to see it um, when they, because I'll be able to watch them when they go up on YouTube. So this is a very cool event that, that the old pen is put together and such a an interesting complimentary to like the podcast so and kudos to jc brain my co-worker yeah. who it was his his child his his baby that he's uh really wanted this thing to happen and he's really put all the effort into organizing it getting it all going so that's very yeah cool. so cool all right well we've got some wild stories to tell today <laughs> we do and i think you're starting sky what do you have for us i think so all right so i today am talking about a woman who was not in for forgery because <laughs> we've covered a couple of those already i'm talking today about number five nine five two alta hazeltine 
So sources are her inmate file, newspapers.com, ancestry.com records, the official Moscow Idaho Moscow. The official Moscow Idaho website, <laughs> which is ci.moscow.id.us, the um, Idaho State Historical Society reference series on history.idaho.gov, um, an article titled A Brief History of the University of Idaho by Carlos Schwantes from the UI Factbook from ucm.uidaho.edu, which I actually access through archive.org, and then um, the Women's Tennis Association, the 1900 to 1912 Olympics, and Moscow um, ID pages on Wikipedia. So, um, Alta Hazeltine was born on May 31st, 1918, to Ambrose and Mabel Oliver Hazeltine. Now, records state that she actually was born in Canada, and her obituary states that specifically she was born in Bigar, Saskatchewan, I think I'm B-A-G-G-A-R. Her parents were actually both American citizens. So because of having been born in Canada with American parents, she was technically a Canadian citizen, but she basically could be a naturalized citizen once she got back to the United States. She was the oldest of three girls. She had a younger sister, Lillian, who was one year younger, and Betty, who was three years younger. Lillian was born in Canada around 1919, so her family remained in Canada for the first couple years of her life, and then Betty was born in Idaho in 1921. Now, Ambrose and his family sort of crossed the Canadian and U.S. border several times throughout Alta's um, younger years. They always passed through Kingsgate, which is the Canadian port just across the Idaho border port, which is called Eastport. Anytime that they would sort of go through, they cross the border, they would live in Big R, Saskatchewan, again, where Alta was born. And so as far as I could tell, the migration was due to work. Um, I couldn't quite tell what kind of work. Farming would be my best guess. And in 1920, they crossed the border again looking for land, probably looking for their own farm. That didn't really work out, and so they finally migrated out of Canada in 1924. And once they, once the family migrates out, Ambrose decides he still kind of wants to move in and out. And so Alta and her mother and sister go to live with Mabel's grandparents in Moscow, so her mother's grandparents um, in Moscow, Idaho. Don't really know the much about the rest of her early life. According to the Latah County prosecuting attorney Murray Estes, Alta actually spent some time at the State Industrial School in St. Anthony, but I couldn't find for how long or the exact reasons um, that she was sent there. But the Latah County prosecuting attorney did say about her that she, quote, has been a constant source of trouble to law enforcement officers in Latah County, end quote. That's all the details that we have on what kind of trouble she was always um, getting into. Um, mm. But there is sort of this this idea that she is um, kind of getting into trouble uh, from a younger age. So by 1936, Alta is just 18 years old, and she has a friend named Willis Sullivan. On one of her intake forms, um, the prosecuting attorney, you know, they, they get asked questions like, what are the character of the associates of this person? Basically, it's just a sheet asking them to sort of give, like, character um, reference. And one of the things that he says in this form is that she has, quote-unquote, bad associates. And Willis Sullivan is probably the very definition of the bad associates that Estes is talking about. Um, now, interestingly, 
this Willis Sullivan happens to share a name with a very well-respected attorney in Boise, so finding newspaper articles on Willis Sullivan during the 1930s provided some, like, contradicting evidence, because it would be like, Willis Sullivan does this great thing, and then in another article it'd be like, he did this terrible thing, and I'd be like, I don't understand. <laughs> so it took me, a, like, a couple, like a little bit to be like, these are different people. So, together with our bad Willis Sullivan, Alta was actually arrested in October 1936 in Nampa for what the Idaho Daily Statesman describes as a statutory offense, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, statutory can be somewhat of a confusing term because in modern times we use it um, especially to describe an offense against a minor, like statutory rape. In this case, statutory means, quote, carrying a penalty prescribed by a statute, end quote. So basically it just means they committed a crime. And I, it didn't say what the statutory offense was. But only a few months later, the Daily Statesman declared that Sullivan was awaiting extradition to Seattle after he stole $1,600 in cash, a diamond scarf pin, and a diamond ring from a sailor. And um, so given that, it's quite possible that their statutory offense was something like what he was charged with, stealing robbery, something like that. And um, I think it's probably related to that because... The future crimes that Sullivan and Alta get into together um, would look pretty similar. I don't really know what happens to her over the next three years, but we do find her next in Moscow, Idaho, in 1939. So, pause here, take a little break from my favorite little mini history, Idaho <laughs> history corners. So, I love this. I always love it's these. Fun. It's fun. I learned so much. It's a good time. So we've talked about a general history of Moscow in both Margaret Hardy's episode, which is season two, episode four, and Ida Laertes, which is season two, episode 10. Now here's a tiny bit of a recap, but obviously I don't want to get too much into it. So members of the Nez Perce, Palouse, and Coeur d'Alene tribes inhabited the region where Moscow currently sits. Now, post-Civil War, around 1870-1871, white settlers began to settle in the area, partially due to a, quote, abundant grassland and available timber for building, end quote. Um, And that quote is actually from the Moscow official website. Now, Moscow was first called Hog Heaven because of the abundance of camas bulbs, which pigs apparently really enjoy. But Hog Heaven is not, like, a place I would want to move, I feel like. I'd be like... (laughs) I don't, why is it called that? I'm so, hog heaven. <laughs> I mean, I, like I guess it. it is, yeah, I guess it is kind of a positive thing now, but I think maybe people back then didn't think it was like quite as charming as they wanted it because in 1872 they changed the name to Paradise Valley, which oh. I think I might be more inclined to go then. And they actually changed that name after a post office opened. And then three years later, in 1875, the name got changed to Moscow. Now, there is some debate as to where the name Moscow came from. And I believe in previous episodes, I said that it was actually named after Moscow, Pennsylvania, where the postmaster in 1875 was born. And then, of course, there is always some speculation that it's tied to Moscow, Russia. There isn't really conclusive proof like either way um it's kind of like the name idaho where it's like it just somewhere got called that and that's what it's called 
So, in a letter to C. E. Arney, who was actually the warden in the early 1900s, but、um, in the, at the time that the letter was written, he was the Northern Pacific's Western Immigration and Indian Agent. This was in 1922. He claimed that a Russian established a trading post in an area near Moscow and named it after his native city. But that was basically just sort of word of mouth from that he he got that information from an ex-governor named William J. McConnell. As I said, most sources state that it's from that postmaster Samuel Neff, who was born in Moscow, Pennsylvania, and also at one point in his life moved to a Moscow, Iowa, or someone got Iowa and Idaho confused. Which last night, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but I was watching the Boise State game, the first one that was on TV against UTEP, and the broadcaster opened with "Welcome to the capital city of Ohio." So like, oh, it's. <laughs> It's still happening, so it's quite possible that someone was like, "Oh, Moscow, Iowa," but they're actually talking about his time in Moscow, Idaho. Honestly, we may never know why it's called Moscow. So, anyway, after the territorial capital had been moved from Lewiston to Boise in 1864, many citizens in the Idaho Panhandle no longer wanted to be part of the territory. And in the late 1880s, as the Washington Territory is closing in on statehood, many Northern Idahoans or Idaho Territorial citizens wanted to be part of Washington and not Idaho, and so the territory, Idaho territory, realizes that like we do kind of need those people for population in order for us to get statehood. So we have to do something to placate them, and so the territorial legislature puts the territory's new land grant university in Moscow. There was a bill that essentially proposed that Northern Idaho be part of Washington, but President Grover Cleveland actually pocket vetoed the bill that proposed it, and all that means is that like they put it on his desk for him to sign, and he just kind of left it there and didn't do anything. Like he didn't formally veto it, but he didn't sign it by the deadline it had to be signed by. So they weren't allowed to return to Washington because basically the the bill was dead on arrival. So the University of Idaho in Moscow was chartered in 1889, and it opened to students in 1892. Now Moscow in 1939 is fairly uneventful. I did find this interesting tidbit. In November 1939, a Nampa Butter Company called the Spring Butter Company was charged with quote shipping adulterated and misbranded butter into California in violation of the Pure Food and Drug Act. End quote, and it was actually charged that in Moscow by a federal grand jury.、Um, so that was kind of a little interesting tidbit. And then a lot of what went on in Moscow in 1939 was actually related to the University of Idaho sports teams. And another interesting sports-related thing I found was there was a women's tennis tournament in Moscow in 1939, sponsored by the Women's Athletic Association.、Um, and I wondered, like, that seems kind of early for like a professional tennis league to be occurring. But I、um, actually found out that women could play in Olympic-level tennis as early as 1900. But women's tennis, as a separate category, did not become a permanent fixture until 1908. And then to put things into perspective, it actually would take another 30 years for a an official professional women's tennis organization to、uh, exist.、Um, and that was actually founded in 1973.、Um, it was called the Women's Tennis Association, and it was founded by Billie Jean King,、um, who is just an incredible athlete. And she actually,、uh, I covered the Battle of the Sexes. 
tennis match uh, in episode 38, um, which is one of our uh, episodes on the riot. So if you want to know more about the Battle of the Sexes, it's actually like one of my favorite sporting events in the history of U.S. sports. Fascinating. Anyway, so the Mo- this Moscow women's tournament was, quote, one of the largest tennis tournaments ever held on campus, end quote. And the newspaper listed 17 women from southern Idaho participating, but interestingly didn't list the women from like other parts of the state. But still, like, that's pretty cool. Like, women are competing, getting attention. There are, it's not just, like, a small section of women. Like, people from all over the state are coming in to participate in that tournament. So I thought that was kind of cool. In 1939, the population of Moscow was around 6,000. The 2019 population estimate was 25,700. It's been 80 years, but Moscow has sort of always been sort of a small college town. So... If we go back to Alta, by 1939, again, she's in Moscow, and she's back in touch with Willis Sullivan and another man named James U. Stevenson. And in early April 1939, Stevenson and Sullivan decide they want to rob a man named Ed Beard. And I I don't know if they knew Beard or not, if he was a stranger, if they thought he might be a good mark because they knew him. But what they do is they essentially use Alta as a kind of spy for the two men. And so they basically have her get in Beard's good graces and start to scout things out. And so this is according to Estes, the late Latah County prosecuting attorney. She scouted out Beard's apartment in Moscow. And so that would lead me to believe that she perhaps is putting on the charm and acting like there's some interest uh, romantically or otherwise there so that she can get into the apartment, see how it looks, what there is perhaps to take. And then she reported back to Stevenson information she gained while scouting it out. And then they, as I said, they attempted to use her feminine wiles. And so the prosecuting attorney described her crime as happening because, quote, she endeavored to place Beard in a compromising situation as an aid to the perpetuation of the planned robbery, end quote. So it definitely seems that there's some sort of romantic, if not sexual element to that. Now, robbery is not the only thing that the trio did to Beard. Details of the full crime are unclear, but basically Sullivan was charged with battery, so it seems that a physical altercation was part of the robbery. Mm-hmm. Um, all three were arrested and sentenced on May 27, 1939. Willis Sullivan pleaded guilty to battery. He received four months in the county jail. Stevenson pleaded guilty to robbery, and he was sentenced from two and a half years to 15 years. And Alta pleaded guilty to attempted robbery and was sentenced two and a half to seven years. And I think that's because she didn't partake in the actual taking of items, but she was obviously very crucial in the uh, in perpetuating it and, and helping make it happen. So Alta Hazeltine entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on June 2nd, 1939. In her intake form, her name is listed as Alta Mary Hazeltine, in for attempted robbery, age 21, height 66 inches, so she's about 5'6", weight 113 pounds, build small, hair light brown, eyes blue-gray, complexion fair, obviously no mustache, born in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Well... They didn't list it anyway. Born in Canada, had 
no occupation and was received from Lataw County for two and a half to seven years. The Bertillon chart that they have for her is not real descriptive. Um, her teeth are noted as good. She has a scar on her forehead and a vaccination scar on her right arm, and that is all. Now, the prosecuting attorney claimed, quote, the prisoner is reported to have been suffering from both syphilis and gonorrhea, end quote. And of course, we don't have any way of knowing if this is true or not. It perhaps seems like another assassination on her character because we do I do find and I don't know if you see this with men very often but women especially get really tagged with suffering from uh, venereal disease but yeah it just seems to be something that especially leveled against women as like uh, an assassination of their character their low morality this is why they're in prison Um, but again that's not to say that she didn't she might have but I just find it very interesting that it's especially leveled against women. So, there are five other women in the women's ward when Alta entered, and this is, like, star-studded. Lida Southard, who we covered Season 1, Episode 10. Mary Crumroy, who I covered in A Stool Pigeon Saturday during our riot episode. Edna Eckersley, who was in for Embezzlement. Marjorie Bess, who was also in for Robbery. And Della Lang, who was in for Forgery. So, after a year and a half of prison time, because, again... We don't have a ton about her. Um, her parents decide that it's it's time to try to get Alta released. And so this is a letter from Alta's mother from September 18th, 1940. Quote, As it will be impossible for me or Mr. Hazeltine to be present at the board meeting two weeks from today, I am taking the privilege of writing you to ask for our girl's parole. We have written her and asked her to come up again at this meeting. I would like to have her come home if it is at all possible. We need her very badly at home as there is so much on a farm to be done and I haven't been well and it is too expensive to hire help in the house and it is just almost more than I can do. And two, I believe Alta has very well learned her lesson and will be a little more choosy as to the company she keeps, hoping and praying for her release soon." End quote. And after serving 18 months, two months after her mother's letter, Alta is actually given a conditional pardon. And the conditions are the usual, that she refrain from alcohol use, observe all local and national laws, obtain employment, and report once a month for two years to the Lataw County Sheriff. And she is released on November 8th, 1940. And she returned to her parents' home in Potlatch, Idaho, which is about 70 miles south of Coeur d'Alene. And while she is uh, in Potlatch, she meets a man named Harry C. Lewis, and they were married on May 11th, 1941, nearly two years to the day after her arrest. So again, her sentence is two and a half to seven years, and she's married two years to the day after her arrest almost. So, again, I think we see a little bit of gender difference, but I think she also, she must have shown enough remorse um, and maturity during her time or else they wouldn't have let her out. So um, Harry and Alta live in Spokane, Washington. Now, one of the other conditions of her conditional release is that she not leave the state. But she wasn't aware of that. And actually, this would not be her biggest problem after she's released. So, in December 1941, Alta, Harry, and a friend named George Griffin, they take a road trip across four different states. Now, again, the one problem is she's not allowed to leave the state, so not only is she living in Washington, she's now taking a road trip across the country. But more importantly, the bigger problem is that the car that the trio had used had been stolen by George Griffin. 
this is actually an interesting for me anyway. So she's actually interviewed because when she comes back, I think authorities are like, hey, um, where'd you go? Um, and she kind of admits to it. And so she actually is um, rearrested and uh, brought up for violation of her uh, probation, her parole. Now, so there's an interview conducted on December 9th, 1941. Now, this may set off some bells for some of you. This is two days after Pearl Harbor. So that's a very interesting intersection in national history because I, I like wonder what the mood was like. Yeah. Pearl Harbor, I mean, Pearl Harbor was essentially the 20th century version of 9-11, which actually we are recording this on 9-11. And so um, major parallels, the mood would have just been somber everywhere, I would imagine. Um, So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting date. So this is an interview conducted between Alta and some state and FBI officials, and it reads like this question. Now, Mrs. Lewis, what date was it that you met Mr. Griffin? Answer the 27th day of November. And you had a trip with Mr. Griffin, didn't you? Yes. And on this trip, just where did you go from Moscow? We went to Lewiston, Grangeville, McCall, Boise, and Wells, Nevada, and Ely, Nevada, and Glendale, Nevada, and from there to Ashford, Arizona, and Williams, Arizona, and from there to the Grand Canyon and Las Vegas, Nevada, and also Salt Lake, Utah. What did you do on these trips? Just rode in the car. Just for a trip? Yes, just for a trip. Those were the only states you were in, three outside of Idaho, Arizona, Utah, and Nevada, those three states, and on leaving the state, you knew you were violating your parole. I moved to Spokane, and nothing was said when we got married, and then we moved back. That was shortly after you left the state penitentiary? From November to May. I never knew that, but it is required that upon leaving the state, you must have permission to go. Uh Uh-huh. Did you know that this car George Griffin had was stolen? Not until the way back, when we just left Salt Lake City. He didn't tell you that it was stolen? No. Did you surmise that it might be stolen? Yes, because of the names in the compartment on the back of it. And then they say... The statement you've already made as to your trip out of the state without permission of the state parole officers is voluntarily given and of your own free will? And she says yes, and he says... Have you made your last month report to the state parole officer? No, I haven't. Hap, who was Harry. Hap was trying to get in touch with you, so I didn't send it in. There was no officer that could legally sign it, not knowing the trouble. End quote. And that's essentially the end of the interview. And so obviously, even though she admitted to this wrongdoing and said, like, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to get, or that I was supposed to get permission to leave the state, and I didn't know this car was stolen until the very end, she did violate the conditions of her release and was returned to the state penitentiary. And this is from the Ogden Standard Examiner, uh, reported from December 12th, 1941. Quote, the women's ward at state prison is no longer empty. Alta Hazeltine, returned from Moscow as a parole violator, was the occupant today. The last tenant was Lida Southard, paroled October 1st. So there was actually about two months where the women's ward was completely empty. And Alta returns to a completely empty women's ward. And then throughout the rest of her time there, she would be joined by Grace Fox, who was in for forgery, Leora Eliason, who I talked about. She was in for adultery. I talked about her on season five, episode eight. And then Hazel Irene Starr, also in for forgery. Now, over the next six months, Alta and her family worked to secure another parole for her. Much of sort of the debate over this release was dependent not on Alta's ability to secure a job, but on her husband's ability to secure a job and uh, monetary security, basically. 
And so this is a letter from June 20th, 1942, from George K. Moody, who is the sheriff of Laytock County. Quote, I'm taking the liberty of writing the pardon board at the request of Mr. Harry C. Lewis to inform you that in the case of Alta Mary Hazeltine, who is coming up before the next meeting of your board. Mr. Lewis assures me that if Alta Hazeltine is released, he is in a position to take her back and support her. A word of explanation may be necessary here to explain that Mr. Lewis is the lawful husband of Alta Hazeltine. I understand that Alta is willing to come back to Mr. Lewis, and that being the case, I am inclined to believe that Mr. Lewis has steady work and is in a position to take care of her." End quote. And then about a week later, June 27th, 1942, this is from Luther LaRue, which is a great name, the constable of the 4th Justice District in Latah County. And he says, quote, I hereby certify that I know Harry Lewis and I know he is working and able to take care of his wife, end quote. So at the July meeting of the Idaho State Pardon Board, Alta's mother appeared on her behalf trying to capitalize on the letters from Laytock County officials. And this is from the meeting minutes. It says, quote, Parole Officer Poach thought prisoners should be given another chance, and upon the mother's assertion that the husband has a job and is well-placed in the community, the board voted unanimously to restore prisoners' conditional release as heretofore granted and agreed to warden's request for immediate release, end quote. And so Alta was once again conditional released from the Idaho State Penitentiary on July 1st, 1942. And so from her original entrance date to her last release date, she technically served three years and 29 days. And of course, you know, there were a couple months that she was uh, free, but that is sort of ultimately what she ended up serving. So again, she returned to Potlatch, Idaho, to her parents and her husband, and Harry, her husband, was a lumber mill worker. He was employed by Potlatch Forest, Inc. in 1942, and that's according to his World War II draft card. Then, on November 13, 1942, Governor Chase A. Clark signed an executive order granting Alta a final release. And she received a letter from the chief parole officer from the state penitentiary a week later on November 20th. And it reads, quote, enclosed, please find the reply to your question, what to do next, written on your last report. Under a ruling made by the attorney general, Bert Miller, you are entitled to this final discharge at the end of your time of your conditional parole. So here it is. You are through with this place and I trust for all time, for I want to see you make a new life, which all will fully respect and admire. It is up to you, end quote. Um, and I always love a, I like love correspondence like that where they're, they're like, listen, you've done well up to this point, but it is complete, like no one is in charge of you anymore. And so yeah. it is up to you to make sure that you don't come back. Right. Yeah. So her marriage to Harry, however, is not one of the ways that her new life of respect and admiration would continue because as early as April 1943, which is six months from her final release, Alta filed for divorce, charging Mm. habitual intemperance, or in other words, excessive drunkenness. And that divorce was granted and finalized on September 9th, 1943. Now, three days later, on September 11th, 1943, she married a man named Lawrence W. Roach in Moscow. What? Yep. Three days later? Three days later. So, I mean, okay. granted, she filed for yeah. divorce in April, and then there were six months until it was... It was kind of one of those things like we saw with one of the, like, especially younger girls yeah. who was like, I didn't know I had to wait, so I just got married. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was very much just had to wait for it to be finalized. So it was plenty of time gotcha. to, like, meet someone and, you know, just had to wait for that to come through. So... <sighs> On March 8th, 1944, uh, so this is, again, about six months after her marriage to Lawrence, she died in Spokane in her home at the age of 26. 
Um, mm. I didn't have records to access to records that stated how she died, but at 26 years old, it is certainly not of natural causes, and actually none of her obituaries state her cause of death. But Alta Hazeltine Roach is actually buried in the Moscow Cemetery. And wow. that is actually all I have for Alta Hazeltine. Wow, I've been super curious about her story. That's just her mugshot. She is. She's just so youthful, and she's wearing uh-huh. like this cool pattern dress. And yeah, it's like a, it's a gingham dress, and she's got a headband. Um, yeah. She was only 21. I mean, that's young. And then 26, wow. like, I'm 28, and I do not, like, I don't feel like I've had, I mean, anything happen in my life, you know? Like, right. there was so much ahead of her, and I am really curious as to what her cause of death was so i was i was really sad that i couldn't find that um but obviously it is it had to have been a disease of uh, of some kind and i just hope it wasn't a prolonged illness because no one no one deserves that and and it does seem that she she was trying to turn her life around you know we we do we do love to see that, um, but it is just so sad that her life was cut short so early. She packed a lot into 26 years. Wow, good work, guy. Yeah, thanks. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. All right. Well, um, I hear, you know, per usual, you have some very exciting things to tell us. Oh, my gosh. Yes, this is uh, this story is wild. I don't know how I've never heard of this. So and I'm so excited to share this. I mean, this Uh, is what's so great about this podcast, right? That like we've always had the stories that we've always heard. And then we, we get to dig into uh, stuff that like I actually I found another female inmate that we missed yeah, uh, a couple that's weeks right. ago just because I was doing digging for the podcast and like we never would have found her if I hadn't been doing this extra digging so like it's very cool that we get to get into these stories that we've never heard before but that are incredible so I'm yeah. excited yeah great work by the way and what her name was Eddie is that right Ed, well it's spelled Eddie and Amber actually made the point it's probably said Edie but it is Edie. spelled E-D-D-I-E and so if and it was in the list that doesn't have like the statistics next to it the one that's between 48 and 73 yeah and so it's listed just with her husband and I think uh-huh. his name was Jerome and so it was like Jerome and what looks like Eddie and so that's probably why we missed her. Oh yeah. my so gosh. That's I'm, so I want to do her I want to do her next season because I don't know a thing about her. So Yeah. <laughs> I had to do like just the tiniest bit just cuz I was like, oh, "Okay, what? How have we yeah. missed this?" But I guess it is good that it shows that we're still continually doing research even when we think, uh-huh. you know, it's been done. So right. yes, yeah. very excited about that find. I was like, "This is so cool." Like cuz yeah, that's the second one that we just 
for whatever reason, just missed, I think, because both of them had not masculine necessarily, but what looked like more masculine names. So it was sort of easy to miss them. Yeah. So anyway, side note. So yes, let's, let's hear your very exciting story. So today I am covering a wild story. And anyone who's seen the Netflix documentary series called Murder Among the Mormons. Great series. Great series. Oh, so good. It's it's about a series of, of attacks in Salt Lake City in 1985. And you might see a little bit of a connection to this 1958 story. And you might also, you know, I'll mention the name of another prisoner that someone else relates this story to later on as well. So. Mm. It involves several people, but two men would spend time at the Idaho State Penitentiary for the crime, and they were Charles Feely Jr. and Monty Moore. Now, I'll start with Charles. So, Charles Marvin Skip Feely Jr., he had a nickname of Skip. He was born in Sugar City, Idaho, on October 11th, 1939, to Charles and Iretta. Charles went by Marvin to his family, but also his nickname, Skip. And his father was from Colorado and worked as a carpenter here in Idaho and helped with the construction of the Anderson Dam on the South Fork of the Boise River, which was completed in 1950 northeast of Mountain Home and creates a reservoir that provides irrigation water for farm fields. I just thought that was so interesting that he had been part of that. His mother, Iretta, mostly raised the children and worked for a short time at a candy factory. And the family was LDS, and Charles had three younger siblings. He had a very good childhood, by all reports, and lots of religious values in his upbringing. And he was an active Boy Scout as well. He also worked most seasons on farms, picking potatoes and, and baling hay. And as a teenager, he actually began apprenticing as a carpenter, like his father. Now, when he turned 16, he got a job at in Albertsons and had to work, which is a, a grocery store here in Idaho, and he, he worked on Sundays, so that means he started to miss church. And by the time he was about 18, 19 years old and entering his senior year in high school, he rarely went to church and began hanging out with some older boys, who I will cover next. In 1957, he was actually arrested in Idaho Falls for drunkenness. The judge didn't convict him, but he did give Charles a severe talking to, and it was after this that things really started to go downhill for Charles as he mingled with a bad crowd of older men. The other man I want to cover is Monty Moore. Now, Monty was born on August 16, 1936, in Idaho Falls, Idaho, to Lawrence and Rhea Moore. He was three years older than Charles Feely, and Monty had an older brother with mental disabilities, a younger brother named Dennis, who you will hear about in a little bit, and a little sister named Rita. They also had a younger adopted sister named Myrna, and their father actually died in 1941 when Monty was around four or five years old after getting blood poisoning from an infected splinter he got at work. Ooh. His mother raised them as a single mother for several years, and she remarried in 1948, but that husband actually died in a car crash just months after their marriage, and so she changed her name back to Moore in honor of her first marriage. The family was LDS, just like Charles Feely's, but they weren't super strict. There just wasn't a lot of time that they could put into their religion. 
And like Charles, Monty got busy with work and couldn't attend Sunday services regularly about a year before his crime. He had worked at several farms growing up and helped his mother make ends meet for the family by working full-time at Albertsons after dropping out of school. And this is a couple years before Charles actually worked at Albertsons in Idaho Falls. So they didn't work there at the same time, but they had that shared Mm -hmm. background. Mm -hmm. Now, in February 1954, Monty actually joined the United States Army at Fort Douglas, Utah. And after a couple of years, he was honorably discharged without any punishment record or any court-martials on February 1st, 1957 at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He had actually earned the rank of Army Staff Sergeant and had remained in the United States during his entire service. Back in Idaho Falls, he began his own trucking company with his brother Dennis and ran a service station, a gas station essentially. And in late 1957 and early 1958, Monty started to run into some bad luck which hampered his new business. So the first thing occurred on December 27, 1957, Monty called the Idaho Falls Police Department to report his car was missing. After filing a report, he contacted his insurance company to report the theft and collected $365 from the company. Mm -hmm. His car was nowhere to be found, and his luck actually didn't improve after this new year. In early January 1958, Monty returned to the gas service station that he he was running on a Monday after closing it down on a Sunday to discover more than 5,000 gallons of gas missing. That's that's a lot of gas. (laughs) It was a lot of gas. It was valued at more than $2,000. So, Sky. Oh, yes. 1958. How much is $2,000 in today's money? (laughs) The 50s is so skewed because post-war boom right? was so big. I'm going to say $2,000 in 1950. Yeah. I'm going to say that's like $10,000. $18,892. Yeah, oh, I was man. like, I have to check this that's a couple so, times. Like, yeah. That's so much gas. Cause, and like gas was like a dime a gallon or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's so much gas. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and so man. essentially, like, that's like an entire, that's all the gas. Like, they yeah. had a, a tanker fill up the tanks and then Whoa. leave. And Yeah, so police investigators, they speculated that the thieves would have had to use a gasoline trailer truck to haul that fuel. And uh-huh. it would have taken them about 45 minutes to drain the tank. I was so, going to say, like, how did they get away with that? Like, right. no one noticed for an hour? Yeah, they think it happened in the middle of the night on uh, Saturday night, like, like right after the fuel tanks came and unloaded, then oh. another fuel tank came in and stole it all. So I, you know, I, I couldn't find if the investigators, if they discovered the thieves or if Monty was insured on the gas and got paid out for it, like his car or anything like that. I did, however, find hundreds of stories about people reporting their gas caps being pried off and a few gallons, a few gallons of gas being mm. siphoned, but not really any stories of thousands of gallons being stolen all at once. So this is a pretty unique thing to happen to Monty. <laughs> He's fallen on difficult times, and, you know, he starts to find some luck when he meets this young single mother and recent divorcee who is a year older than him. This is 24-year-old Rowan Gasser of Idaho Falls, who worked at the local Safeway. 
And Monty explained that he had often helped her out, at, and she kind of pressured him into their relationship a little bit. Most of the arguments in their short relationship were over her father, Golden Gasser, who Monty said was, quote, very dominating. End That's quote. a great name. Golden, Golden Gasser. Gasser. Right. That's so right. good. <laughs> Regardless, the two purchased a marriage license in Arco, Idaho, west of Idaho Falls, on March 12th, 1958 and began planning their lives together with her 15 month old infant son from her previous marriage and they were planning to get married on april 1st 1958 so april fool's day (laughs) now their engagement bliss was hampered when a little over a week later terror struck the community of idaho falls at around 8 p.m on march 23rd 1958 an explosion quote shattered the evening silence end quote earlier in the evening a man named arthur johnson who worked as a brick worker and a miner returned home to his wife after a visit with his father he was despondent and told his wife quote you'd better you'd be better off without me end quote According to newspaper reports, he then loaded his car up with around 300 sticks of dynamite, drove to the edge of the city dump, lit the fuse. Arthur and the vehicle were destroyed. The motor was blown from the frame and debris scattered as far as a block away. It was just the first explosion that would terrorize the town that week. 300 sticks of dynamite. 300 sticks of dynamite. Like, that's so much. Horrible. Horrible. Like, talk about, like, terror of hearing somebody commit suicide in such a a horrific way. So, three days later, on March 26, 1958, five sticks of dynamite went off throughout the town in Idaho Falls. Sorry, this is in the 50s, right? Like, this isn't, like, mining times when, like, dynamite is just sitting around. Right. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Okay. So chunks of asphalt and other minute damage occurred for the first three explosions because it seems like they were just kind of tossed out onto the street. But the last explosion occurred around 11 p.m. when a bomb went off in front of the Mel Brown Pump Company building near the edge of town. Two large front pane windows shattered, but there was little more damage that was done to the building. And it was estimated that about $200 in damage was done. Now, authorities suspected that teenagers had gotten a hold of some dynamite and the town was on high alert. Two members of the 6th Army Ordnance Disposal Team from Camp Hanford in Washington were sent to help with the investigation to track this down, and civilians actually joined on the lookout. The next day, Thursday, March 27th, 1958, two more bombs went off. One was set in a government-owned vehicle, which reportedly ripped the top off the car. This prompted the FBI to enter the case and help investigators, and the second bomb would be nearly fatal. The Idaho State Journal on March 28, 1958, produced the story, quote, Dynamite blast terrorized IF. A mad dynamiter was feared on the loose in Idaho Falls today after spreading terror for two nights by setting off blasts in the residential and business districts. One of the explosions injured a 24-year-old mother as she was driving with her baby in the downtown no. area. No. Idaho Falls Police Chief G.F. Perrin said that at first he believed juveniles were responsible for the series of explosions which have terrorized residents and caused property damage Wednesday and Thursday night, end quote. Yes, 
no. that 24 year old no. mother was Monty's fiance in oh, his car. Oh, no. sad. Right. She had oh. been on her way to pick him up at the gas station, and she was rushed to the hospital. And in the end, she actually survived the attack and suffered a fractured pelvis and severe burns on both legs and several cuts. Her son was miraculously unharmed. Whoa. Yeah. Her car was destroyed. The roof was blown clear off the top. And I'll actually include photos of the vehicle that were printed in the newspaper in our Facebook group. So check those out. It is how she survived is honestly a miracle. Wow. Now, locals collected money and offered a $1,000 reward for the capture of the bomber. And the Idaho Falls police, they were struggling to maintain peace. They called for the aid from civilians. And on Friday, 300 civilians from all around came in and joined the ranks of around 100 other officials, including police, fire auxiliaries, security guards from the Atomic Energy Commission office, and the American Legion, the Civil Air Patrol, and other officials. They patrolled all night long, and the bomb stopped. And on Saturday, nearly 400 people returned to the patrol, and no explosions were reported again. Quote, weary civilian defense volunteers reported for duty again Saturday night after an all-night vigil, which may have discouraged another blasting spree by Idaho Falls Dynamiter. Police believe the person responsible is mentally disturbed, end Mm. quote. And actually, that day, Monty Moore and his brother Dennis were arrested and held at a $10,000 bond. You remember I told you that Monty's car was stolen the previous Mm -hmm. December. Mm -hmm. Well, authorities found it about 10 miles in the desert, and it had been set on fire out there. Gasoline had been used as an accelerant on it. And authorities thought it was kind of suspicious and pulled the brothers in for questioning. And Monty admitted that he had done it to collect on the insurance money that like $365 he got for it. Oops. Yeah. So while questioning the two young Moore boys, authorities asked if they had any involvement in the dynamiting. And authorities actually searched the Moore's property and discovered 136 sticks of dynamite, 125 dynamite caps, and fuses. I I, I just, like, don't... I, where do you get dynamite? <laughs> like, right. That's, like, Looney Tunes, like, 1940s. I, uh, like, I didn't uh, know sticks of dynamite uh, existed into the 20th century. I Especially know. not I in 1950. Uh-huh. Huh. I still actually don't know where they got this. I tried to find that. I tried to answer that. And it wasn't long until Monty actually finally admitted it and brought in his young, impressionable friend, Charles Feely. Hmm. Now, I will say Monty's brother, Dennis, was acquitted on all charges that I've mentioned above. But Charles and Monty admitted that the six bombings, including the Mel Brown Pump Company, were done to make it appear like a dynamite terrorist or a gang of young criminals were randomly targeting the community. With this inkling in mind, it would divert the attention of authorities and, more importantly, increase the value of Rowan Gasser's life insurance policy. So unbeknownst to new fiancé Rowan, Monty had taken a policy out in her name, and if she perished under the normal circumstances, Monty would be paid $10,000. But in the case of a murder, the amount increased by double to $20,000. 
He hired Charles to help aid him, promising him $10,000. So this 18-year-old kid, I'll give you $10,000 if you help me with this. If you help me murder my wife. Exactly. Oh, I don't... Dang it. I was just... I suspected it. And I very much wanted it not to be true. I All right. know. Oh, my gosh. The two had planned the entire attack. They set off the bombs on Wednesday and scheduled the bombing of Rowan on Thursday to happen simultaneously with the government vehicle to make it seem like it was entirely random. Monty let Rowan have the vehicle for the day and asked her to pick him up from the gas station, setting up a time for Charles to prepare the dynamite. In his intake statement, he wrote, quote, on March 27, 1958, at Idaho Falls, Idaho, Charles Marvin Feely Jr. and I attempted to kill Rowan Gasser. I let her have my car, and she took it home with her. I led her to believe that she was to come to my gas station to pick me up. I had purchased some dynamite and gave it to Feely. He took the dynamite and went to Mrs. Gasser's home after dark. This is a misspelling he did, but I do not how many sticks of dynamite he used but he placed the dynamite in the car and attached a fuse to it. There was enough fuse so that it would take about seven or eight minutes for the fire to reach the dynamite. When he saw Mrs. Gasser turn out the lights, he knew she was coming to the car. She had with her her small boy, a little more than a year old. Feely lit the fuse, but at the time he lit it, he did not know she had the child with her. Mrs. Gasser got in the car and drove away. She drove perhaps for three or four blocks before the dynamite exploded. Miss Gasser was seriously injured. The baby was not hurt at all. If the plot had succeeded and we had not been apprehended, I expected to get $20,000 insurance on her life. Hmm. I was arrested on March 29, 1958 at Idaho Falls. Miss Gasser expected that she and I were going to get married. Uh, that is just... I mean... I, I just like, like it's sadistic. Oh. It's, it's, it's such an unfeeling act to oh, like yeah. get involved with someone and make them believe that you care about them when in reality you do not at all. Ugh. Like oh, it's so such horrible. disregard for human life and human emotion. Like, oh. So both men, they actually signed confessions and plead guilty. An elder at the LDS church Charles had been a member of actually attempted to help Charles, the, the younger man, explaining that he had been a very good kid growing up and hadn't been to church due to his job. And he asked the judge to actually reduce his sentence or to all out acquit him so he could join the armed forces instead of going to prison. But for the community and everyone involved, it just, you know, these two, they terrorized this community. They caused some real trauma in this community. And the judge actually wrote of Charles, the younger man, quote, he was an accomplice in this crime of bombing the building and also a confessed accomplice in the larger crime of attempted murder. I did feel, however, that Mr. Feely was perhaps more weak than wicked and was perhaps the tool of the other stronger personality. And I believe that perhaps he could be led into paths of honor without too much difficulty, just as he had been led into the path of crime. I could recommend with regard to this boy that his case be studied and that if, after a lapse of sufficient time to serve as a punishment for a very grave and serious crime, he should indicate that he has abandoned the associates and the ideas which led to the perpetration of this crime, 
then parole should be considered, end quote. The other judge disagreed, simply writing, quote, premeditated. This man was to receive $10,000 for doing this job, end quote. He was sentenced to 15 years and 14 years, both of which would run concurrently on April 11th and April 25th, 1958. Now, in reference to Monty, the prosecuting attorney wrote, quote, The details of this offense are premeditated and cold-blooded to the extent that it is my strong recommendation that defendants serve a maximum time at your institution. I am against commutation of sentence, and I do not recommend any early parole, end quote. And then the judge, Honorable Willard C. Burton of the 12th Judicial District, wrote, quote, This man looked like a fine, intelligent young man. Standing before me in the courtroom, he had a good appearance. Contrary to what I have grown to expect from many of our juvenile offenders, his hair was well combed, his clothing was neat, and his attitude was neither sullen nor indifferent. He appeared to realize that he had been caught in the perpetration of a serious crime, and although he did so reluctantly, he seemed willing to take his punishment. Nevertheless, I gave him a maximum sentence because his crime, the bombing of a building and the burning of an insured property, were part of a plan whereby he intended to create terror in the city of Idaho Falls, according to his own confession, and to commit murder upon a girl who had trusted him. And although his appearance was better than that of many of the boys who appeared before me, and his demeanor good, nevertheless, the facts of his crime were worse in some ways than those of any other crime with which I have dealt. They indicated to me a wicked and malignant heart, devoid of sympathy or understanding for his fellow creatures. I cannot extend to him or on his behalf any expression of sympathy or hope for leniency. End quote. That wicked, malignant heart, that's the same sort of thing that they said about Raymond Snowden like mm. two years before during his trials, uh, before his execution. So their intake forms. Charles Marvin Feely Jr., number 9931, alias Skip, his nickname, received April 26, 1958 from Bonneville County. Crimes, bombing of a building, and assault with intent to murder. Sentence, 15 and 14 years to run concurrently. He was single. He had a German Scandinavian descent. He was LDS. He had brown eyes, brown hair. He was five foot seven and a quarter inches tall, 151 pounds, and had a medium complexion. Monty Moore, number 9932. He was received April 26, 1958, the same day. Crimes, bombing of a building, burning insured property, assault with intent to murder. Sentences, 20 years, 10 years, and 14 years to be served concurrently. County, Bonneville, plea, guilty on all charges, marital status, single, religion, LDS, descent, English, hazel eyes, brown hair. He had a tall build. He was 5 feet, 11 and a half inches tall and 158 pounds with a medium complexion. And I was like, oh, hey, that's like exactly my mm -hmm. <laughs> dimensions right there. Uh, no deformities, no tattoos. He was vaccinated. He didn't smoke, gamble, or do drugs, but noted that he drank rarely. Occupation, truck driver, and grocery clerk, and his teeth were fair, and he had several small scars on his body. Now, Charles kept his nose clean during his incarceration. He was brought into the 1890 cell house upon arrival, and he wrote regularly to his family, including his parents, his grandparents, brothers and sisters, his in-laws, aunts, cousins, and uncles, 
And in June, his mom actually sent him a box with a fly tying book and kit, as well as a small transistor radio with the speaker clipped per prison regulations. You can't have your speaker going. You have to plug in your headphones to listen to music. Mm. A sweet letter actually arrived addressed to the warden from his grandparents in August of 1958 with a check enclosed and a note asking, quote, will you please pass it to Marvin if it will pass as he needs some money? We just didn't know how to send him some change. Sorry, we didn't get down to visit him this month. We love him so much and sure do miss him. How's he doing? And does he get our letters? Sure hope so. Or do we write them the right way so they will pass on to him? Or do we address them the right way? Will you please let us know if this is the way to send mail to him? End quote. And Warden Clapp responded that they received both cashier's checks from Grandma and Grandpa. And his commissary books reflected that and noted that they don't have to send the letters to him, the warden, but can actually address them directly to Marvin with his name and the proper P.O. box. He ends the letter, quote, he is getting along very well and making a good adjustment, end quote. That is just the cutest grandparent thing that I've ever heard. Like the oh. it's like the like we miss him very much. Like that is something that like I can hear my own grandmother saying. Like we just miss you know just yeah. like you know it's not about like is he being a good boy. There's no like he's this criminal and we don't want to have anything to do with him. It's just pure unconditional grandparent love. And we love to see it. For being involved in such a heinous thing, for them to, like, know that he's, like, this misguided youth and, you know, he's such a good boy. And so many people in the community were the same. They're like, we cannot believe it. Like, this is all because of that Monty Moore boy. Charles, he actually didn't return to church or go into any religious meetings, but instead focused on continuing his education. He was in his senior year of high school. And he actually began school a month into his incarceration in May 1958. And his first two years until 1960, he enrolled into school in a number two yard. And after completing several courses, became an instructor in the mechanical drawing and drafting classes. From 1960 to 61, he worked as an apprentice or helper in the machine shop, but was taken from his position when it was suspected that he made a zip gun in February 1961. Now, I recommend everyone do an image search for zip gun to see the wide range of materials that can be combined to make a makeshift firing gun. As we've learned from the Dennis Clark episode, prisoners had access to bullets at the site and had plenty of material in number two yard and particularly the machine shop to create guns that actually fired. It's pretty menacing stuff. Yeah. And from there, you know, he got reduced to the position of janitor in number three house. And he regularly helped the maintenance crew with issues in the cell house while working as the janitor. And his supervisors often wrote reports about how reliable he was despite the zip gun fiasco that he had charles was released on parole on december 26 1962 kind of a day after christmas present here mm. he left with a billfold and papers a radio speaker a bundle of letters and 84 dollars and four cents that he had collected either through family or through his work as an instructor he got a job immediately with a construction outfit 
and he requested permission the following summer to marry a childhood friend named Sherry, which was granted. Mm -hmm. And she revealed in a marriage interview that she knew all about his crime, and she felt he was a good person, and she could help him. And the parole board approved the marriage, and a few months later, Charles requested a release from the parole. And Daryl Gardner, the district agent from the state probation and parole, noted, quote, It is felt that he has corrected his sudden impulses and his nature to follow leads of others. The subject, to my knowledge, has never been reprimanded while on parole, and his parole record has been one of complete conformity, end quote. And Charles was discharged from parole on June 8, 1964. So... 1958 to 1962, he's incarcerated. In 1964, he is completely released. Nice. Now, Monty Moore, after intake and processing in the 1890 cell house, Monty worked in the license plate factory in May 1958. Then from there, he moved to work in the commissary from the end of May until August 1958. And, you know, of course, I didn't mention it with Charles, but the major riot occurred in which guards were held hostage to send a message to the public in September 18th, 1958. We covered that in season four, I believe, our riot season, disturbing Mm -hmm. justice season. Monty was not involved at all in that and actually continued working in the commissary, stocking shelves, selling commissary items, and working as a storekeeper's assistant. His supervisor wrote, quote, inmate has done exceptionally good work in inmate's commissary. Honesty and work habits above reproach, end quote. He also started working as a clerk in the prison school in Number 2 Yard in July 1962 until his release. His supervisor at the school wrote, quote, Excellent attitude. Has been most helpful in working out a school record system that works. Conscientious about his work, Monty is intelligent and accurate in his work. Thoroughly dependable and by far the best clerk I have had is always studying math or some other subject, end quote. And in another report about his job at the school, his supervisor wrote that he was doing a fine job, quote, in handling and bringing school records up to date. He is dependable and takes a real interest in this whole school setup. Also, he has been doing an increasing amount of higher math and other difficult studies with excellent grades. I hope he can go to college, end quote. Now, Monty Moore, as per Section 20-223 of the Idaho Code at that time, legally had to serve one-third of his sentence minimum before being eligible for parole, so just under seven years. In early 1960, like two years in, several letters arrived on behalf of Monty Moore. The actual sheriff, A.E. Heslop, and Chief Deputy J.W. McNeil both called for his release, feeling that, quote, this man has served sufficient time and that he has no doubt just punishment for the crime committed, end quote. I mean, I I was Mm. like, what? Yeah, I don't know. A letter arrived from Monty from attorney Rulon R. Price on March 18, 1960, who was hoping the parole board would support his release. Quote, I represented him in several legal matters, and to say the least, I was wholly and completely shocked when learning of his involvement in the bombing, end quote. Again, I was like, really? What? I mean, it, it's it's definitely the, like this idea of like, well, he didn't actually murder her, so it's like not that die. bad. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think that's kind of what they're trying to go off of, but but man, like I, had a hard time I mean, these. he planned her execution essentially. Like, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I don't uh. know. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, 
a lot of powerful people in the community actually wanted him to be released, but mm. he wasn't allowed for several more years. And Good. in August 1961, Warden Clapp inserted this document into Monty's file with the note, quote, this paper was circulated to some of the legislators at their special session, August 3rd, 1961, and was given to me by Senator Samuelson, who received it from Senator Smith, end quote. A month prior to the special session, a former prisoner named Jasper Jack Hall met with Golden Gasser and gave a statement at the Idaho Falls Police Department. He entered the prison, Jasper Hall did, in June 1957 for attempted forgery and was given an indeterminate sentence. And this letter, which was really interestingly printed out, stated... Quote, while I, Jack Hall, was in the state penitentiary in Boise, Idaho, I met an inmate by the name of Monty Moore. This man, Moore, struck up a friendship with me while I worked in the body shop in the pen. Monty Moore propositioned me, if and when I got out of the pen, and I returned to Idaho Falls, Idaho, that he would give me $1,000 to do some bodily harm to one Mr. Golden Gasser, who lives in the Teton Basin area. If I could not get to Mr. Gasser himself... I was to do something to his horses. I was to use some type of high explosive to do the job. I was to contact Monty Moore's brother in Idaho Falls through Monty's mother, who lives on Water Avenue, to get the dynamite and caps to do this job. Moore said he would give me $500 now, and I was to pick up the other $500 when the job was finished from Monty's mother. Monty also gave me a picture of Mr. Golden Gasser that had been cut from a newspaper. He also gave me a detailed map of the Gasser Ranch, including a bridges, buildings, and roads. Monty was to give me the first $500 and a bowfold that he was to build while working in leather goods. And this is at the penitentiary. That is about the only way he could get it out while he was in the penitentiary. Moore seems to have a lot of power in the penitentiary. Guard Kelly, the guard gate to number two yard, always let Moore through into number two yard. This yard was one yard Moore was never to be in. Monty also worked in the commissary and had access to almost anything in the commissary. After the riot at the pen, Monty seemed to have all kinds of money. Also, Monty had access to the captain's check. Monty seems to be the promoter of many things that go on in the penitentiary. When Duke Lords was in the penitentiary, he had set up where he could send marijuana to Monty Moore's mother, who had a list of the guards at the penitentiary, and she in turn would send it to the guards to be distributed in the prison. Feely, who was sent up at the same time as Moore was, is very quiet and does not mix in on these incidents. I, Jack Hall, was released from the Idaho State Prison June 1st, 1959. My number at the prison was 9667. I returned to Idaho Falls, Idaho, September 1st, 1960, at approximately 5 p.m. I also had talked to Mr. Golden Gasser in Driggs, Idaho, a few hours prior to coming to Idaho Falls, end quote. And then attached to this document was this other one, signed A.L., and I, I am kind of at a loss as to who wrote this and who created this, but it says, quote, it will be remembered that Monty Moore feigned a marriage to the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Golden Gasser of Driggs, Idaho, for the purpose of getting her life insured so that he could kill her and collect the insurance. And then pretty much the rest of this letter is all in caps. The insurance was obtained. 
The attempt at the killing was made by placing dynamite under the seat of an automobile which the gasser's daughter and her young son, by a previous marriage, were riding. Only by a miracle did they escape death. Newspaper reports of the time, summer of 1958, give few of the sordid facts. According to Mr. Gasser, this man, Hall, came to the Teton Basin with the intention of earning the $1,000. But after meeting Mr. Gasser, he had a change of heart. He then told Mr. Gasser that which is set forth in the statement and many other things in addition, this story with all the almost unbelievable entanglements and involvements is probably only in second place to that of the Harry Orchard dynamite killing of Governor Stunenberg and the entire criminal history of the state of Idaho. Apathy, civic flabbiness, and plain just don't give a damn ignorance of that which is flourishing and expanding right under our noses is bringing us down into captivity. Let us pray. The Senator from San Pete, AL 8161. End quote. San Pete, like Utah? Yeah, in Utah. I did find a bunch of letters in Utah newspapers from newspapers.com from the senator, but his his initials were AI. It just didn't work huh. out and he wasn't the senator at that time. So I'm I'm very confused as to who wrote these letters and despite these letters, which I, I couldn't corroborate any of this information, Monty's sentence was commuted. Hmm. And he was actually allowed to be paroled on December twenty sixth. 1962. A year later, he was placed on unsupervised parole, and five years later, on May 24th, 1968, he was granted a final discharge. Now, from there, I have no idea what happened to either Monty Moore or Charles Feely Hmm. Jr. The last documents I can find on Monty are that he was living in Washington in the 1990s and early 2000s and may still be alive. Charles also may be still alive. In the last records I could find on him, he was living kind of in southeast Idaho, Rexburg area. Rowan Gasser actually recovered from those injuries, and she remarried, and I found that she passed away in Rexburg, Idaho, on September 1st, 2020, at the age of 86. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so, like, it's this story. It just, man, I I hate to say it. It blew me away. I I, (sighs) have... How have I never heard of this? This is such a traumatic event for Eastern Idaho. Yeah. And, and for the fact that these two got so little punishment mm-hmm. and were kind of commended, it's just so fascinating to me. Yeah. And I, I do think that Monty's military service had a lot to do with how he was treated, like right away. And then Charles's age, being such a young man and sure. having such community and religious support behind him i think Mm -hmm. that really helped his case Mm -hmm. and yeah that is charles feely jr and monty moore wow that is fascinating and you kind of get this like that connection to the murder um, yeah oh yeah totally yeah i was actually wondering if because utah is often so connected to right to southeast side yeah like through that mormon connection that I wonder if the bomber in Utah, I wonder if he knew anything about it. I mean, granted, I guess it was in the, this is like 30 years before he did it, but still, like, there were several times during that where I wish you could see my face because, (laughs) what? (laughs) 
Well, I mean, yeah. excellent work. Oh, thanks, Guy. That Unlike Saint Seer a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, it was just so nice to do a story that was so cut and dry and just... Yeah. Wow, and and it had all these twists and turns, and uh-huh. like I knew the ending first, and then I started going backwards and seeing like, oh, whoa, this guy yeah. kind of. I think even the gas. I think that there may have been an insurance payout, and that mm-hmm. he may have been mm-hmm. the one who stole the gas or did something along those lines. But I, I still to this day, I don't know what the end of that story was. So yeah. if I ever huh. come across it, I'll do a quick little update on it. But that is so interesting. And actually. Not long after this, six members of the Idaho Falls Police Department were all sent to the institution, and that will be a future story that I cover. So, oh, it dang. Uh, like like everything we do on this podcast, one story leads to another. Wow! Wow! So Anthony and I and the podcast are going to be at Tree Fort this year, the rescheduled from last year. I will actually be there. I, I got funding from SMU, so thank you to the Moody Graduate School for that. Yeah. So um, if you are coming, we will be presenting on Saturday, September 25th at 4 p.m. That is going to be at the Boise Center, room 120, which is the conference center that is next to, what is it, CenturyLink Arena? Yeah, the Boise right. Center on the Grove. Yeah. yeah, so the address for that, if you are concerned, because I need addresses because I'm always anxious, <laughs> is 850 West Front Street in Boise. And I think we are both going to be talking about some really interesting people. I'm very excited. And I'm excited yeah. to be back in Boise, in Idaho, in the fall. Oh, so looking forward to this. So Yeah, me too. Hopefully, we will see you all there. There is a mask requirement for all performers on that stage and mm-hmm. all audience members. So, you know, we're trying to do our best to make it a safe and mm-hmm. and fun event for everybody. They do have a requirement for Tree Fort events that, you know, you'd show proof of vaccination uh-huh. or a negative COVID-19 test that's been taken. We hope to see you all out there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll mm-hmm. see you soon. Come Yay. meet you. And uh, one thing we haven't talked a lot about there are shirts for sale behind yes. Gray Walls t shirts at the Old Idaho Penitentiary. And stickers. And stickers. The yeah, stickers come get are a, a bit sticker. smaller, but we have merch. <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. I apologize for the size of the stickers. That hey, was my... You know what? They're, they're very exciting. I have a bunch all over my laptop, so... Ah, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Do your own time. Do your own number. We hope to see you Saturday. If not, we'll talk to you next week. Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 